Okay, join me in Acts 19, 11 through 20 today. Let's pray. Father, will you lead us in the path of your commandments and guide us into lives that are holy and pleasing to you? Would you change our affections so that we delight in your word? Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. By your word and spirit, teach us what is truly valuable. Turn our eyes from worthless things, we pray. And give us life in your ways. In Christ's merits and for our joy in him, we pray. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the word, Acts 19, 11 through 20. Paul is in Ephesus here at this point, beginning in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of what that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Praise God. This is his word. You may be seated. How do you deal with magic and demons? It's not a question we ask or have to really ask, at least in an overt sense in our time and place. But it was something Paul had to deal with. Um, If Corinth was a city known for its debauchery, the Las Vegas of, of Macedonia, then Ephesus was known for the magic arts. That was, it was the center of, of magic in uh, the Roman world. They were, uh, fond, they were fond of using magical incantations and formulas, and these formulas from Ephesus have been found on, on things like scrolls, uh, bowls, pottery, books, amulets, bracelets, necklaces, and other kind of trinkets. And I saw one picture of a clay, sort of essentially what we would call a voodoo doll with, with stuff stuck in it. Um, 
And in Greek, these formulations from Ephesus had a name. They were called Ephesia Grammata, or Ephesian words. So Ephesus was known as a center for this kind of magic activity. We even know from reading books and movies uh, that, that magic can rest in invoking the name of a higher being. And what higher name, of course, is there than the name of Jesus? So this becomes very appealing to someone who is into, into uh, the magic arts. Which leads us to another question. We may not deal all that much with magic or demons, at least uh, in a direct, overt expression, but we make use of the holy name of Jesus daily. So the question is, how do we think about the name of Jesus? Do we reverence the name of Jesus as though it has great power? Not because there's anything in the in, in the verbiage itself, but because of the person to whom it belongs. Does the name of Jesus have power? Or do we treat it like a talisman or a magical formula or, or a swear word, or perhaps even as just a mere academic or theological historical category of thought? Do we reverence the holy name of Jesus? Our text begins with God doing extraordinary works through Paul, which has, of course, special purchase in a city like Ephesus. So again in verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Uh, this is reminiscent uh, of stories in the Old Testament. Second uh, Kings 13, Elisha had died, the prophet Elisha. And it, it says, now a band of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet just by touching the bones of Elisha. It's also reminiscent of Jesus, right? Uh, Matthew 9, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So this is a theme of divine power, that just by touching these objects, uh, that they are healed. Um, and in, in the case of Paul, that demons are being cast out. And Luke calls this, these healings and these exorcisms extraordinary miracles, which by definition means they are extraordinary, outside the ordinary. People often ask me questions like, in Bible times, dot, 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 Bible times is a large section of time. And we see throughout Scripture various times when extraordinary miracles take place for extraordinary purposes. We can imagine now the purchase these miracles had on the minds, hearts, and imaginations of these Ephesians people who, this is extraordinary power. And power 
preaches in Ephesus. If you want an interesting study, look up the word power in Ephesians and read those verses in light of this passage and the Ephesian understanding of power and miracles. It actually, I just realized this this week, but it sort of makes a lot more sense of the book of Ephesians how much Paul is talking about power. You'll see Paul in the book of Ephesians setting up Jesus as the true power and the true source of blessing. So it's interesting, the whole question of contextualization. Do we preach uh, for the culture around us so that they can understand? We see, of course, that we do. Uh, Paul does frequently in Pisidian Antioch among the Jews. He preaches with a lot of Old Testament reference. In Lystra, among the pagan Gentiles, he preaches based on their understanding of Zeus and Hermes. In Athens, he preaches using philosophy and unknown God as tools. And here in Ephesus, God himself is using mighty works, miracles, to this place where they are interested in in magic. But it's important. I heard a missionary recently who said that contextualization is to make the gospel Clear, not easy. You notice Paul, he's, he's always uh, speaking their language, he, and he doesn't stutter, and he's always directly contradicting everything they believe. So in this circumstance, it's not as though he's saying, well, just, just do your magic, and, and what about Jesus as well, right? Now, the Ephesians... Uh, they would have been blown away by these miracles. But it also seems that they miss, of course, an important distinction, and that is the difference between magic and miracles. Magic is formulaic. Ephesian words, uh, Ephesia grammata, these amulets, this, this pottery, all these little phrases, um, you have to say the right words, you have to pronounce them correctly in order to sort of unlock the, the mystery of the magic. Even in our own inter- entertainment, we see this. Uh, Harry Potter, you know, they dis- disarm their opponent by saying, Expelliarmus, right? And they, their, their wand is taken away or, or whatever. Or um, in Lord of the Rings, at the, at the door to Moria, uh, Gandalf is trying to solve this ridder, riddle to enter the door, and he can't figure it out, and suddenly he realizes... The, the riddle says, speak friend and enter, and it hits him. The elvish word for friend is uh, melon, and the door's open, right? So you got to say it. It's formulaic. You have to say it, and you have to say it right. That's what magic is. It's also, magic is manipulative. It's uh, an attempt to manipulate the spiritual realm. And I say attempt, I think really the, I don't think the forces of evil are bound by incantation, uh, really, you're you're playing on their field at that point, anyways. Um, so, either way, we see this in this story that men are are interested in using special tricks and phrases to get what they want out of the spiritual realm. We see actually in Acts there's a bit of a theme of of magicians. We've already seen in Acts eight Simon Magus of Samaria uh, and. In Cyprus, Elymas, also a magician. In each of these cases, these magicians are always there after self-service, self-promotion. 
Miracles, on the other hand, are opposite of being formulaic and manipulative. Rather than being expected, they're unexpected, they're extraordinary. And notice the initiator in verse 11, who is doing the extraordinary miracles? It's the first two words. And God was doing mighty works through Paul. So a miracle is something that God does, a mighty work that God does, and he will not be manipulated, and he doesn't require a formula of words. So this distinction between magic and miracle is one thing among many that the sons of Sceva failed to grasp. In verse 13, we read, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. See, that's a, I adjure you by the Jesus, Paul. I'm admitting I don't believe it, but the one he proclaims. And again, we see here, they're, they're essentially inclined toward incantation. And they're interested in self-service. How can I use this name of Jesus for my advantage? How can, I, how can I add this to my bag of tricks? Uh, Craig Keener says that ancient magical texts show that many exorcists were Jewish or drew on some knowledge of Judaism. And these texts include every possible per- permutation of vowels as guesses for the pronunciation or unpro- of the unpronounced name of God. Others invoked Solomon's name in expelling demons. Some later ancient magical texts invoke the name of Jesus alongside other formulas, recognizing, as do the exorcists in this narrative, its efficacy when employed by Christians to expel demons. Um, So this is fairly common that that exorcists were Jewish or had Jewish roots using the name of of Yahweh or of Jesus um, to, to do that. But they're using it again as a talisman. They don't actually believe it. It's interesting, you see this practice actually quite a bit in some Christian circles as well. Um, You've heard people use phrases like, I pray the name of Jesus over you, or or, I declare the name of Jesus over you. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, there's literally no meaning behind that. I just declare the name of Jesus over you. It sounds very spiritual, but it is in fact more magical than spiritual. The story continues in verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I know this word high priest, um, probably this person wasn't connected to the high priestly family. Uh, Again, Craig Keener is helpful. He said, although Judeans used high priests loosely for the highest members of the priestly aristocracy, it is possible that Sceva simply appropriated the title for himself since few in the diaspora could have easily checked. Inscriptions and texts testify to other irregularities in Jewish priestly claims outside Jewish Palestine. Because Jewish chief priests would be thought to have access to the sacred name and hidden names, especially of the supreme God, were thought to wield great power in magical circles. Sceva is probably highly reputed in those circles, which that makes sense to me. Um, 
Now, I'm reminded here of what Jesus says, that there would be those who say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So the point is not that if the sons of Sceva had enough faith, it would have worked. Which is the tempting application. That's where my mind goes initially. It's actually possible to cast out demons in the name of Jesus without genuine faith or without knowing Jesus. (laughs) Hi. Yeah, so I think it's possible to, to, again, to cast out demons without actually believing in the name of Jesus. That, and that, that faith is not just one ingredient in, in sort of the incantation soup, right? I believe instead this event was designed by God to highlight the true power and authority of the name of Jesus Christ. And in contrast to false power and false authority. And it will be Jesus and Jesus alone that true power is found. It's not in some self-serving, kooky, itinerant Jewish exorcist. And this, I think, goes to show that that magic, or whatever you want to call it, doesn't actually manipulate demonic forces. Instead, magic is in league with the forces of evil, with, uh, w- with which they cooperate insofar as they're interested in cooperating. That, that the demons don't have to bow to these incantations. And in this case, they see no reason to comply. They do recognize the authority of Jesus, and they recognize the authority of Paul, the messenger of Jesus. But these sons of Sceva carry no weight. And then in one of the more terrifying but also somewhat humorous uh, events in Scripture, uh, this fact is put on public display in verse 16. And the men in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Uh, I can, thanks to Jerry, we got to see some silent films this, this uh, last Friday. Um, and you can just picture this whole scene unfolding in that sort of fashion of a, of a silent film running it, going into the house and then all of them running out naked. Um, it, it's terrifying, though, because one man was able to beat and strip seven men because he was demon possessed. And they're, they're made to look utterly foolish. We see a. A reversal here that that God, through one man, Paul, heals and exercises many. And on the converse, seven sons of Sceva can't exercise one man, and he overpowers all of them. This is public embarrassment of the enemy in order to display the power of Christ, which is a common theme throughout Acts. I mean, it's interesting to me that uh, from a strategic perspective, it would make more sense for the demons to just comply. And they don't. Like, just to legitimize these, these phony exorcists. But they don't do it. And to me, it's similar to the question, why did the devil compel Judas to betray Jesus, knowing that he would 
died to forgive sins, right? Like the devil can read the Old Testament. He knew what was happening. But we have to remember that there are not two equal forces of evil and good competing against each other and battling it out for, for cosmic victory. The demons believe and they tremble. They know Jesus. They cry out, what have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? The, the devil is on God's leash. And he can use a- angels or demons alike to testify to his glory. And so in this case, in, in their own, the demons' own willful, stubborn, uh, uh, and, and, and violence, they're used to testify simultaneously to the authority of Christ. And, and to the validity of his messenger and, and to the ultimately to the gospel that he bears. So this, this public embarrassment leads to public awareness in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So suddenly the name of Jesus Christ holds real weight in Ephesus. Luke says fear fell upon them all. This is a holy reverence for the name of Christ. It's no longer just a talisman. It's no longer an addition to the Ephesia Grammata bag of tricks. This name is different. It's holy. It's set apart. It is the name that is above every other name. We're reminded of the Old Testament, of the the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's really what the seven sons of Sceva were doing. When we break the third commandment, it's because we fail to remember who the God of the name is. Using the Lord's name in vain is, is a failure to honor it. And fear of the name of the Lord is to reverence it, to set it apart as holy. The larger catechism, uh, 113, asks, what are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? And there's quite an extensive list. The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required, the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning, or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, violating of our oaths and vows if lawful, and fulfilling them if of the things unlawful, murmuring and quarreling at, curious prying into, and misapplying of God's decrees and providences, misinterpreting or misapplying, or any way perverting the word or any part of it to profane jests, curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings. I like that one. We should bring that one back to our... Or the maintaining of false doctrines, abusing it, the creatures, or anything contained under the name of God to charms or sinful lusts and practices, the maligning, scorning, reviling, or any wise opposing of God's truth, grace, and ways, making profession of religion and hypocrisy or for sinister ends, 
being ashamed of it or ashamed to it by unconformable, unwise, unfruitful, and offensive walking or backsliding from it. It's an extensive list, what is forbidden in the third commandment. And such a list makes us aware of our own shortcomings, that, that we may not be compelled by, by the magic arts, but certainly we have trouble sanctifying the Lord's name as holy. And the reason is because we do not fear Him as we ought. Now, the third commandment flows from and is intimately tied to the first and second commandment. The third commandment is really an issue of worship. And so in uh, question and answer 112, it asks, what is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing by a holy profession and answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. So positively, that is what the the third commandment is. It's really an expression of worship grounded in reverence for the holy name of God. So it says here, Luke says that the the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. In the Greek word, I like the Greek word for this. It's megaluno. Mega. It's extolled. It means to to declare as great or magnify, highly esteem, um, enlarge, amplify. It's to lift something up as great. Which is in contrast to the seven sons of Sceva who drag the name of Jesus through the mud. Now in Ephesus, they're raising up the name of Jesus. Not only did the word go out into Ephesus uh, to, to, to bring people to belief, but the young church itself was also being purified in, the, in this moment from syncretism um, so that we see not only the holiness of the name of Jesus, but also the exclusivity of the name of Jesus. In verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Um, this is fairly common. We all struggle with with syncretism, trying to make an amalgamation between Christianity and something else. But I think, especially in cultures where uh, magic is particularly prevalent, they struggle with this syncretism, get rid, getting rid of the old ways, and and focusing exclusively on on Jesus. I think of the very odd combination of Roman Catholicism and Voodoo practiced in South America. Or we had uh, missionary friends from Cambodia, the Olsons, who showed us video of a, of a bull being sacrificed. Um, and, and this was a continual problem that do we need to sacrifice to, to please or appease the gods. But we're also Christians, right? and we have trouble with that. Now, perhaps I think in verse 18, rather than saying those who are now believers came, I think the better paraphrase would be many who were already believers. I think that makes better sense interpretively and grammatically. Um, In other words, these were people already who had been converted, but they were still wrestling with uh, letting go of the ways of the world. And again, we see this connection between the first and, and, 
uh, third commandment, because the Lord is a jealous God, therefore he is to be worshipped exclusively. His name alone is to be reverenced and lifted up as holy, and he alone is to be obeyed. So the news of this event moves through those who are still hanging on to the old ways, and, and they cast them away. Um, they were confessing and divulging their practices. We can imagine how difficult this would have been. This is a, a major part of their lives, their whole lives. This is how they thought. And also, this, this whole system of, of magical uh, experience was a major part of commerce in Ephesus, a part of the, uh, of the cultic practice in Ephesus. So the question is, what would happen to them? What would people think of them? And perhaps how would their needs be met? This is a major shift for their lives. But appropriate fear and reverence, together with a vision of the, the real provider and, and from whom true blessing comes, is something that liberates them from syncretism and grounds them firmly in Christ. They, they will not now go limping between two different opinions. They have cast away this old practice. We see this theme playing itself out in Paul's uh, pastoral letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 19-21 is a, a great example. He wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. Remember, this is Ephesus, the city of, of the magic arts. So notice the emphasis on power. I, I don't think it's a coincidence. What What is the measure, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? With the, that's the ultimate miracle and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come likewise he says in chapter one that in christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours you don't have to go searching for heavenly blessings, spiritual blessings, and all these other spiritual nooks and crannies. Every last spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. He goes on to make the application then that they should therefore eliminate every uh, vestige of worldly impurity in chapter 5, uh, 6 through 14. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon all the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So, magic, uh, tampering with the, the forces of evil... Dabbling in things you ought not to dabble in is probably not your greatest temptation. 
I'm willing to bet that that Paige and Margie aren't going to pull out the Ouija board tonight. If you are, I'm on to you. It's probably not our greatest temptation, but the devil has many wiles, and syncretism is an issue in every context. Uh, C.S. Lewis and the Screw Tape Letters, which I'm sure you all know, is, is a book about a senior demon, Wormwood, tutoring uh, through a series of letters, his nephew and mentee, Screw Tape, who has been assigned to the task of uh, tempting his first patient to hell. One of the letters, Wormwood writes, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. When humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. At least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science such to the extent that what is, in effect, a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy. The enemy is God. Um, The life force, the worship of sex, and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshipping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. Lewis's prescience is sometimes uncanny. Uh, In his book on apologetics, Neil Shinvi theoretical chemist by background, deals with the atheist objection that theism is weird. Someone who would say, isn't it much simpler and more plausible to think that there is nothing out there except normal kinds of objects we can see, hear, and touch than to conceive of an invisible, immaterial mind who designed the universe. And Shinvi goes on to point out how weird modern physics has become. He says, since the advent of relativity theory and quantum mechanics, which Einstein disparaged as black magic calculus, physics has revealed to us a cosmos that is increasingly distant from the ordinary world. The largely comprehensible clockwork of clockwork universe of Newtonian physics has been replaced by a bewildering assembly of wave functions, matter fields and dark energy. Yet, no matter how counterintuitive, shocking, and bizarre the constructs of modern physics become, many in our culture continue to insist that whatever it portrays is ordinary, while the supernatural is extraordinary. We balk at the existence of immaterial realities, but seem curiously unconcerned with the proliferation of ten-dimensional strings, parallel universes, closed time loops, and non-logical entanglement. I don't know what any of those are. You can ask Michael afterward. But he says, you can even see this inconsistency in our science fiction, where magical plot devices are barely concealed by a thin patina of scientific jargon. 
the presence of an actual angel or ghosts in Star Trek would be exceptionally jarring. But if the captain announces that a hyperdimensional tachyon-based life form has materialized on the bridge, we suspend our disbelief. The point being, whether magic or materialism or the perfect devil's creation, the materialist magician, the church must be wary of the influence of syncretism. No matter how much we think of the name of Jesus, we're still always going to, by our sinful nature, to default to Jesus plus. But when Jesus here in this text has been demonstrated to be the one name above all names. He's the one above all rule and power and authority. And seeing him as, as holy moves us to do what the Ephesians did, to, to confess and divulge our practices. so that more and more we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And in the end, the more we confess and divulge our sinful practices, the happier we will be. We cling to those fiercely, but ultimate happiness is found in the Lord. In verse 19, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So this is an amazing display of public repentance, of turning from their ways of utterly forsaking, literally burning the old ways. These books with their, their incantations hold no value in the pursuit of communion with Christ. There's, there's nothing left. There's no value in them at all at this point. Now, the principle of forsaking the world um, can be abused. I know this has been, was true for my parents, and, and uh, Derek Thomas brought this up too in his commentary, but it seemed like at a certain point people were telling people, you need to get rid of all your secular music. Get, throw away your secular albums. Right? Uh, that, that's probably an abuse, an involuntary abuse of this principle of throwing everything from the world away. This instance is more uh, voluntary. They're voluntarily coming to the bonfire with their books. It's more like the alcoholic who willingly dumps all of his booze down the sink. It says that these books were accounted as being worth uh, 50,000 pieces of silver, which somebody said was 137 years of an average day's wage with no days off. That's about how much this was worth. And notice here, though, what true spiritual blessing is. In Christ, these people do not receive better magical powers. They're not made into like supreme wizards of Christ. Instead, they receive the fear of the Lord and repentance from sin. They receive Christ himself and to the point that they count all a loss that they had found valuable because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Luke concludes this section with the sixth of seven summary statements in the book of Acts. 
in verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Uh, teaching Greek, I have to remind the kids about English grammar, so my brain is there. So we'll break this down grammatically. So there's two verbs here, increase and prevail. The word of the Lord increased. It, it grew like a tree or a mustard bush from a small seed in Jerusalem now to making waves in Ephesus. The word of the Lord continues to grow. And it also prevails. This is a word of victory. Despite opposition from the forces of evil uh, at, at every turn throughout the book of Acts, we've seen the word of the Lord marches on. The word of the Lord prevails. It will not be defeated. We also have an adverb here. It increased and prevailed mightily. Mightily. This is no coincidence, I think, that this word refers to to true power in contrast to the seven sons of Sceva. This is true might. That Christ alone is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. And there's no magical incantation. There's no demon. There's no magician or exorcist that can hold a candle to the might and the power of God and the going forth of his word. And finally, the subject of the sentence, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, the success of Christ's mission is ultimately based on one thing. And that's the advance of the word of the Lord. Thus, in great power in this story, the enemy is embarrassed. The apostle of Christ is affirmed. The word goes out and the name of Christ is highly exalted. I'll close uh, with one more word from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with all power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height of his design, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.